Well, welcome back after after a, well, a bit of a layoff, really, um, to episode 62 of The Professor and the Hack. I am the hack, Hugh Rimmington, uh, the professor out from under the sun lamps after a long break. You're positively glowing, PBO. <laughs> G'day, Hugh. It's great to be back. You know, I, um, yeah. I, I, I had some genuine time off, uh, which I haven't done other than a, a week or so over Christmas. I haven't had more than that time off since midway through last year. Um, and, you know, I, I, I only realised when taking the time off uh, how long it had actually been since I'd done it. So it's, it was, I, I feel very refreshed. Of course, no, no, my, my time off mid last year saw me going overseas. None of that this time around. Uh, I, I have seen the wonders of New South Wales, you know, five nights in the Blue Mountains, five nights in Mudgee. Let me tell you this, you used to work at Channel 9 for many years. I don't know if you're a fan of the 12th man and the wired world of sports, but my, I loved it as a kid, you know, with all of that humour around the cricket John Birmingham. team. And, yep, it was brilliant stuff. Anyway, I, we arrive in Mudgee, and the first morning uh, I go to get some coffees from a place that had been recommended uh, to my wife and I by uh, somebody that she works with who grew up in Mudgee as having the best coffee in the in the in the in the town so i go in there get the coffee and who should be walking out with his coffee the male model from mudgie the male model from mudgie the now retired kenny Sutcliffe. and i tell you what i mean my wife almost wished that hadn't happened because i walked back to our hotel room and i said you know what i could literally sit here in the dark for the next four days and i've enjoyed my mudgie experience i can't believe i got to run into the male model from mudgie but he's retired there uh, in his 70s now, I was Googling and stalking him on Google to find out about this. He retired there a few years back. He he spends a lot of his time there, not all his time, of course. Um, but then poor Ainsley, it meant that as a result of this, she was then having to endure me uh, playing clip after clip off YouTube uh, from the Wired World of Sports for the rest of the morning, you know, trying to find the bit about the male model from Mudgee. So there you go. That was more exciting to me than the wineries, than all the bushwalking in the Blue Mountains, but it actually is a reminder, though, how much there is you can do in the regions. And, and we saw the fire-ravaged areas as well. So, you know, those communities, you know, my God, I tell you what, I hadn't actually seen it firsthand. I know you were reporting in the, in the midst of it all, but, uh, you know, the aftermath of it, seeing how burnt out a lot of it was, getting to those communities, it was, it was great to do, actually. And it's easy to forget what's in your own backyard. Look, I think that it's true. And in fact, if you go up the uh, the up the north coast of uh, New South Wales, uh, as I did over, uh, you know, after the bushfires had gone through, and everything was calmed down again, it, one of the things that always strikes you is how close the fire comes to those houses. How how many they yeah. managed to save despite everything else. But look, I'm sure Ainsley is delighted that you're back at work, uh, so she doesn't have to hear you fanboying on Ken Sutcliffe. I've got to say, Kenny, who I got to know very well and uh, count as a friend, uh, would be very chuffed to uh, to know that you made such a, a thrilling moment in your day. And let's face it, PVO, we're here to talk politics and there is not much that is thrilling to talk about. Uh, dreadful numbers continue to come out of Victoria. Um, you know, it's even just the little details. It's the fact that there's 300 odd uh, aged care workers in Victoria have got uh, coronavirus have tested positive. So it's not those, there's a similar number of people who are uh, residents uh, who have got it, but it's the people who are going into work in their hundreds have got coronavirus with all the anxieties that go with that. Um, mm. You know, the death toll remains 
horrendously large. We're seeing people dying in their 40s and their 50s. It's not just that, that argument that goes, oh, well, it's only people who are at death's door anyway. Um, you know, it, it hasn't gone away. And the economic issues, um, where do we start? I saw uh, Josh well, Frydenberg say saying again. Well, well, Josh Frydenberg sa said again when he was announcing uh, the, the, you know, his his new plans for the changed job keeper, job seeker, all that kind of uh, laying it out there on the 23rd, that basically the first task remains to get on top of the health issue and that people are worried about their health. Do you believe that that is a correct placement of priorities at the moment? How do you mean? Like when you say a quick placement of priorities. Well, the alternative view is we saw 60 Minutes, for example, producing mm. an economist saying that we're better to leave the markets, uh, to, to leave essentially society open uh, to, you know, to use a military phrase, take our casualties and to um, at least, you know, keep an economy running. I, I completely disagree with this because in those places where it does happen, the economy shuts down anyway. Oh, I think, but, yeah, but, I think but I do bad. know that senior liberals. Sorry, I'm talking over you a little bit because there's the difficulties <laughs> of the lag of this uh, 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 distancing here. But the um, I have spoken in the last couple of days with uh, with with one senior liberal who is musing to me uh, in, with serious concerns, saying that maybe they've got it wrong. Maybe the uh, the long-term damage to the economy is greater than the short-term damage of the health issue, I again disagree. I think the public disagrees, but there can be no question. This is an argument uh, that is out there and being had. Now, I, th I, th I think the most reputable economists disagree as well. Uh, you know, so, some of the real top tier Australian economists like Richard Holden, who's based here in Australia, also at UNSW. I think one of the economists from that 60 Minutes story was at UNSW as well. You know, He's a professor there. He did his PhD at Harvard. You've then got Justin Wolvers, who's an Australian, but now living in the United States, who's very well credentialed as well. He actually used to write uh, back in his PhD days with Andrew Lee when he was a full-time economics professor before going into parliamentary politics, as he has now. Uh, these sort of figures profoundly disagree uh, that it's an either or. I don't think it's a binary choice. I think that the economy as well as the health system does better if the cautious approach is taken. And, and the reason for that, I think, is very simple. Well, firstly, there's some empirical evidence for it. I mean, you look at states like Florida and Texas in the US, which have tried to open up too soon and then had to shut back down because of mass escalating deaths and contagion of the, the virus. So that's the empirical evidence that we see. But, but even just as, as a matter of logical common sense, the constant open, well, firstly, if you don't shut back down and it rips through, then your ICU units get overwhelmed and the rates of infection are huge. And the, the idea of herd immunity is not only profoundly silly when we don't yet have a vaccine or indeed a full understanding of this virus, throw in what is emerging as evidence goes about these long-term health effects, 30, 60, 90 days, if not more, beyond the period that you actually have the virus, as well as no guarantee that you have immunity once you've had it once, as well as the fact that young people are having a lot of these problems, holes in their lungs, capacity of breathing difficulties, other organs affected, their ability of their, even just something as simple as the sense of smell. There are so many risks to it all. But if you then turn around and get into this back and forth scenario of lockdowns, out of lockdowns, back into lockdowns, because you're trying to manage the situation. I think that's another whole argument about why elimination, not suppression, has to be seriously considered. Wouldn't you rather be living 
in South Australia or Western Australia at the moment, rather than certainly Melbourne, possibly even Sydney, because they have effectively eliminated this thing. And with the closed borders state to state, they're in a much better position. Now, this idea of the economic effects being worse if you keep locking down to try to kill off the virus, so many other nations are doing that anyway. And you're so curtailed in your economic interaction with other nations as it stands. I think it's a lesser of evils. There's no good in this, Hugh. There's only lessers of evils. And I'm on the same page as you. Uh, I think the idea that you know we should let it rip uh, we've got plenty of evidence overseas to show that that's not the best way to go. I was talking to an, uh, a senior uh, physician uh, in the last couple of days too, and and he was he was sort of telling me what they do understand. You just mentioned it there about uh, as time passes, there is this sense that uh, there can be all kinds of long term and chronic effects. Mm. Uh, of the virus. So even when you're testing negative, uh, you know, there are some neurological impacts that are coming. There's a lot of respiratory tract impacts um, that seem to hang around. We don't know what the long-term effects is, but this particular doctor was saying that uh, he believes that there is a high probability that if there was to be a large, you know, a a, a larger scale infection rate within Australia, that the long-term load on our health system with people uh, having to be helped through chronic conditions um, is is a budgetary consideration, quite apart from a health consideration, a budgetary consideration which hasn't really been brought into effect. So even on that level alone, there is a strong argument to say if you want to manage your future budgets, it really is important uh, to try to limit the numbers of people who are getting infected to the degree that you can at, at this early stage of the of the pandemic. We're still in a mm. relatively early stage of a pandemic. So, um, so that argument applies. Uh, Victoria is plainly where all the attention is. How do you see, uh, I, I felt, in fact, the level of the um, uh, adoration, I can't put it less than that, that some people feel for uh, Daniel Andrews as the Victorian Premier. His supporters are locked in behind him. Not everyone hmm. is a supporter. What, what, what's your assessment as to how he's, he's handling it? Yeah, look, I mean, look, I, I think, you know, this this is a superficial thing, but superficial things do matter. I think a, a misstep rhetorically by him a few weeks ago was when he was slightly arrogant in his argument about why would you want to go to South Australia? And he said that, uh, you know, with a little bit of a joke in it, but really it, it was arrogance. And, and that has really turned around and flung back in his face, hasn't it? Because it was just after that that things really broke out in Victoria. And, and now I think there's a lot of... Uh, where uh, there's a lot of Victorians who would like to be in South Australia rather than locked down seemingly indefinitely, perhaps, in Victoria. Look, overall, I think he's he's been unlucky. There's no doubt about that. And, and I think he's also copying blame where the blame needs to be more shared around. Uh, but uh, having said that, I think there are big problems in Victoria Hill. So let, let me just quickly go through these. Uh, I think he's been unlucky because we're only talking about literally less than a handful of people doing the wrong thing amongst security guards in this quarantine structure from hotels, which then led to the kind of contagion that followed. So it wasn't systemic failure with security guards. It was, however, a few isolated failures. And because of the nature of this illness, it became so much more wide than that. And of course, he had uh, security guards doing the hotel quarantining rather than the military, like in some other states, rather than like the police being involved as well. Now, 
I've got a little bit of sympathy for him because whilst that was his call, uh, he had limited turnaround to make the change. And it became his call because the feds decided to handball through the national cabinet the quarantining responsibility to the states. Now, he made that decision. That became a a problem uh, for the Andrews government. But really, quarantining under the Constitution in Section 51, Part 9, I think it is, stipulates that quarantining is a federal responsibility. It was just agreed to with the states that it was handballed. So I think there's culpability in this with everyone. If the pandemic is serious enough uh, to have all the measures that we're seeing writ large around the country with lockdowns, with action and the Biosecurity Act and all the rest of it, I think it's serious enough for the feds not to just turn around and go, oh, well, we'll just let some states make their own decisions on this. They can be more hands-on than that if they had wanted to be, but they decided to handball that. So that's the second point. The final one, though, where I am very critical out of Victoria is the structure of Victoria's health bureaucracy, and in particular, their public health units and their incapacity rather than capacity for contact tracing and the decision-making structures that put their chief health officer so many further rungs down the totem pole of responsibility than the chief chief health officers in other states are, or indeed that the chief medical officer at the federal level is. All of that adds up to a dysfunctional bureaucratic structure that is too centralised when it comes to public health units. It's decentralised in its hospitals, but that's a different discussion. It's too centralised in its structures And there is too much arm's length sometimes around short-term decision-making between the the people that, if you like, the the content experts and the bureaucratic decision-makers. And all of that was something I wrote about it, you know, weeks ago now in the Oz has been a problem with their structure. Couldn't, of course, like anyone, foreseen what happened around hotel quarantine, but that is a function of their dysfunction, if I could put it that way. And that's something that really needs to be looked at as a longer-term piece of public policy reform in the wake of all of this. We'll get on to the economic uh, issues and uh, the way ahead in, perhaps in, in just a moment after a quick break. But just while we've got you on the business of quarantining federal state responsibilities uh, over centralisation and so on, the little spat between um, Peter Dutton and Dan Andrews caused, uh, uh, I suppose, a, a nice moment of mirth in what otherwise was a pretty uh, grim week where um, Peter Dutton was saying that, uh, he, uh, that Dan Andrews should swallow his pride and ask the Commonwealth for more help, that leading Dan Andrews to say, uh, look, when I need help, I ask for it, and I'll tell you who I ask. I ask the Prime Minister. I don't ask the man he beat in a party room ballot. Uh, take that, <laughs> um, uh, Peter Dutton. Is there something a bit more behind that Is in the sense that the – do you think this, the state of Victoria, having taken on the issue of quarantine – from the Commonwealth Authority who should properly hold it, uh, perhaps feeling rightly knocked at getting a lecture from the, you know, the man who's responsible ultimately for border security? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Uh, I mean, Peter Dutton has visually at least been largely able during a lot of this coronavirus crisis. In fairness, the bloke caught it, uh, and who knows what uh, the, the after effects of that are. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I don't know anything that I'm sort of insinuating. The point is he has been somewhat absent, absent, and that has been noted by a lot of people with the role of border force around things dating right back to the Ruby Princess. So he probably just doesn't like getting a lecture from Dutton. And look, you know, whatever you think of Peter Dutton, you know, he is an adversarial political type and unashamedly so. So that was not what Dan Andrews wanted to hear. But I think what really irked the Premier about Dutton acting that way uh, was this backdrop. And this is why the Prime Minister has been very careful in his rhetoric around being too critical of, of Victoria. During the bushfire crisis, there were ample opportunities for state premiers to tee off 
on the Prime Minister, you know, absent without official leave, quite frankly, when he was in Hawaii, as well as some of the other steps along the way. Now, some premiers did take aim, you know, in, in minor ways. Dan Andrews, despite being a, a partisan adversary of Scott Morrison, was very generous in not putting blame at him when really asked at press conferences some very pointed questions about it. He steered clear of it. And I understand that there was a point where Morrison started to, with his ministers, there was a little bit of criticism moving Dan Andrews' way some weeks ago. And there was a conversation between the Premier and the Prime Minister where I understand that Dan Andrews, in no uncertain terms, let fly on how unimpressed he was, given how loyal he had been during the bushfires. And I think that message sunk in hard with Scott Morrison. So he's not doing it. And I don't think he likes his ministers doing it. I think he comes down on them like a ton of bricks when they do. But guess what, Hugh? There's one minister that uh, doesn't listen uh, to Scott Morrison when it comes to his prime ministerial authority. And that's the bloke that he only beat by three votes to become the leader of the Liberal Party. We might get to a little bit about what that might mean as well, just after the break, as well as the economic details. We'll take a quick break. PVO back in just a moment. Reality Bite is back, and we are talking all things Bachelor in Paradise. I'm Talia Pritchard from Punky. I'm Matt Whitehead from Channel 10. And we will be wrapping up everything that's happened in Bachelor in Paradise on a weekly basis for you guys. So if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. We can't wait to see you there. And only leave us nice reviews. Yeah, leave us nice reviews. Welcome back. You're listening to uh, episode 62 of The Professor and the Hack uh, in these COVID days. And uh, PVO, there's no getting away from the numbers. They're absolutely appalling. We're looking at uh, a budget deficit in this financial year of 100 and, I think it's $184.5 billion. We're looking at uh, debt scaling up towards $850 billion. Um, we're also hearing from Josh Frydenberg, perhaps to try to, I suppose, uh, unscare the horses uh, on the conservative side that he sees Thatcher and Reagan as an inspiration (laughs) as we find our way out of this. So on the one hand, we've got almost wartime levels of government intervention and, uh, uh, and, and debt. Uh, And on the other, we're being told that the, the great small government advocates of the late 20th century are the inspiration for the, uh, Treasurer, how do you square the circle? How, in fact, how do we manage what we're going into? Well, one of the great ironies, of course, is well, there's so many ironies, but one of them is that you know Josh Frydenberg's pointing to both Thatcher and Reagan, and, and in a way, he does that because Josh Frydenberg's mentor, if for want of a better word, within Australia is John Howard, and John Howard would always point to your Reagans and and your Thatchers as as inspirations for him. Uh, but you know, interestingly. Uh, in the UK, it's Boris Johnson, and in the US, it's Donald Trump. You know, they're on the conservative side of the partisan ledger, yet both of them have built their reputations, certainly their populist reputations, around, you know, implicitly, perhaps more than explicitly, repudiating a lot of what those respective leaders of the same political parties as them had done during the 1980s. So Josh Frydenberg was sort of shooting in a different direction to the populism of both a Trump and a Boris Johnson, and, and to some extent, some of the populism that we've seen from Scott Morrison as well. Um, but he's trying to, as you say, absolutely correctly, he's trying to rein in, uh, you know, the, the, the concerns amongst sections of the conservative right. You know, if you like the IPA brigade as well, 
that these guys haven't got a lens to, to debt uh, and to what needs to be done in terms of economic reform and, and reining it all in. But God, it's an irony, Hugh. I mean, you know, whoever would have thought that the party that, you know, bitched and moaned about the blowout of debt during the Rudd-Gillard years in the wake of the global financial crisis, telling us that they spent too much and that they couldn't be, you know, if you like, they couldn't be trusted on, on managing the economy and voters, we know, still believe that, according to the opinion polls. Whoever would have thought that that party would go on to double the, the debt in the same amount of time that was built up by Rudd and Gillard, albeit without a GFC, and then at the end of doubling that debt without a GFC in the same amount of time as Labor, then inherit the coronavirus and then, you know, basically triple the debt in all likelihood before we ever get even close to the idea of a surplus ever again. And I bet they regret, you know what I reckon, what do you think? I reckon they regret, and this is superficial to be sure, but I bet they regret when they so-called balance the budget that they didn't tweak it that little bit more so that instead of half a billion in deficit, they weren't half a billion in surplus. They would have loved to have ticked that that surplus box, I reckon, don't you, just before managing where we're at now. And just get one nostril above water, perhaps. Just even voting for five minutes would have uh, would have been a good Instead, look. They're look. running around. They're running around going, "We balanced the budget. We balanced it." Yeah, you know, it's it's, yes. it's very funny. You know, the, the mug didn't say balance, as I recall. Uh, it was back in black. Yes. Look, look, I mean, the numbers. It's funny that you say this because you know Kevin Rudd and others, Wayne Swan and others have have made the point that um, yeah, you didn't cut us any slack when we were running up debt faced with the GFC, which at that stage was the biggest crisis since the Great Depression. Now that we're in a bigger crisis and uh, certainly the biggest since the Great Depression, there's more debt and deficit, and yet you're asking us to cut you some slack. So all of that goes on. It is what it is. Uh, it has real-world effects. We're going to be managing uh, that debt as a society for, well, you know, the the, the Treasurer says 30 years to pay it off. Um, that the Australian Financial Review says that is implausibly optimistic to pay it off in 30 years. But I can't help feeling that the number that people care about is the unemployment number and that that is the number that is set to rise uh, in effective unemployment rates to 15% um, in the months ahead. Surely that is the decisive number that should be focused, uh, focusing every mind. And there are real questions whether the policy scripts that they're pursuing will bring unemployment down fast enough. The Treasurer, at the very beginning of this crisis, acknowledged that it goes up a hell of a lot quicker historically with evidence that we've seen than it ever comes down. And, and Hugh, don't forget the underemployment as well, because you're absolutely right. You know, even if it ticks just under 10%, as the official unemployment rate, it's more like 15 and above percent as the actual rate, you know, when you when you get past all of the way that the ABS calculates this. But the other one is underemployment. You know, I, I think, you know, almost half the bloody workforce all up, uh, you know, are going to end up being in some form underemployed. You know, that is to say, doing less work than they ideally would want to work, but at least fortunate enough to still be in work. Uh, and, and how do they get out of this? You know, I mean, this is where I think the battle of ideas and the class of ideological solutions will present itself not only between our parties here but internally of parties as well and i think fascinatingly it's a little bit wonkish but i think also as we watch the international reaction to this crisis country by country around the world where we're heading back into another battle of ideas i think because the recovery however slow or fast it is or however up and down it is i think that that recovery post covid whenever the hell post covid is uh, I think that is is going to present itself 
as a return to the past uh, on on how to do that. Uh, and I don't think the government's quite got a handle on how it wants to do that. I don't think Scott Morrison is very ideological. I'm not even sure that Josh Frydenberg is. I think he likes to quote people who are ideological. I don't know that he necessarily is himself. I also think about people in the late teens and their 20s and 30s, uh, many of whom have copped uh, the unemployment harder than those who are older and may have more established forms of uh, employment, uh, mm. but um, those in the casualized workforce and so on who are landed with levels of debt that's going to have to be paid back at some stage. So when they're at the peak of their working lives, uh, they're going to be the ones who are essentially trying to shovel uh, a fair chunk of the coal in the fire to, to, to you know, to keep that, that sort of debt thing managed and, and, and sort of try to be asked to bear the burden of getting us back into surplus again or balanced budgets and all that kind of stuff. Um, it does seem particularly harsh on them. And even the business of, uh, you know, trying to get people into training and so on, the, the, the universities are laying people off in their thousands. I, I spoke to one oh, who lost yeah. a job at a university yesterday. And so this idea that uh, there's even, say, room in universities to go to or to retrain, uh, you know, the, the pricing around, the price signals around which courses you can do are being directed by the government and, you know, certainly away from arts and waterwoods, things like IT, that's, you know, that, that's another argument and all the rest of it. But I can't help feeling that uh, there is a, um, a reason if you're, young the young tend to be a bit more optimistic but a reason to feel as if somehow or other this is all going to land in their lap yeah i think that's right and and of course politically one of the well public policy wise one of the ways it shouldn't land so heavily in their lap is that tax reform should look at ways of spreading the tax burden away from income generated as 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 taxable versus assets and other mechanisms of of taxing uh, you know in, into people's wealth uh, rather than simply their earning earnings being taxed hits uh you know younger people in particular you know, people obviously of working age uh and then unemployment hits the youth more than anyone because of course youth unemployment is always so much higher than the more general unemployment numbers so there's a double whammy there whether you're in work or out of work you know you're getting screwed by the current situation that we're in. One of the solutions to that, one of the antidotes to it, of course, is reform of you know wealth structures around taxation structures, which would hit older people. We've got a massive demographic bubble uh, amongst the baby boomers who are hitting retirement age. But the, the difficulty for politicians, and one of the reasons why we've seen so little reform in this space over so many years, and perhaps won't going forward, is because they are such a large demographic bubble. And that demographic bubble is a voting bubble. Uh, and there are more mobilised voting bubble than a lot of others. And as a result, uh, you know, politicians balk uh, at doing anything that would be too harmful. We saw the effect of Bill Shorten's dividend imputation scheme, which baby boomers were disproportionately impacted on uh, compared to other generational cohorts. And, and, and there was a real blowback to that. So, uh, look, th these are not going to be easy reforming moves. You know what we need? We're going to need a government that's prepared to lose elections to do the right thing and then hopefully win them because they did the right thing. I just don't know if we've got the politicians to, to, to take that kind of an approach. Yeah, because that goes to, it really does go to it ultimately, is we've seen what Scott Morrison has been like in a crisis, initially during the bushfires, disastrous, uh, in the face of COVID, much better. What is he like as a reformer in terms of sorting out uh, the country? Is he... 
uh, a large enough figure to lead a, uh, a fractured and fractious nation in a difficult time uh, through brave reforms to a stronger Australia? Does he have that in him? Uh, do we want that of him? Well, look, I, I don't know that we do want it, and that's one of the reasons why I don't think he will do it, but I also don't think he has it in him. I mean, this is never perfectly analogous, but he's more likely to be our Malcolm Fraser than our Bob Hawke, if I could put it that way. If you think about Fraser sitting on the need for reform and not doing anything with the Campbell review and then Bob Hawke taking over and him and Keating getting on with microeconomic reform, Fraser sat on his hands when apparently John Howard as treasurer wanted to act but didn't have the authority. Then you had Hawke and Keating do the actions with in no small scale support from Howard from opposition when he became opposition leader after 85. Uh, I, I think there's something analogous in that now. I don't know that it necessarily follows the partisan configuration or, or who the personalities are, but I, I do think that within that sort of structure, we need reforms, but I don't think we're going to quite get there yet. Fraser didn't do it because Australians weren't really ready for it yet off the back of the tumult of the early 70s and the Whitlam years, I think. So he sat on his hands, won elections, and then ultimately got booted out in the midst of a recession that came on in the early 80s. I, I think that, you know, Morrison might be politically successful. He might not get booted out. Of course, Fraser lasted a long time as well before he eventually got booted out. He became Australia's second longest serving prime minister at that time. But I just think, I, I don't see Morrison as being more than a Fraser when it comes to the embrace of reform. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. Interesting. Just before you go, there is a reshuffle, as you have noted, and others that is going to be forced on the government by the retirement of Matthias Cormann, holds a senior mm. position, of course, finance minister for all these years, but also uh, as the Senate leader for the government. Um, in the reshuffle, you have speculated that uh, one of the moves will be to park Peter Dutton off in defence, uh, defence a very senior and important portfolio, but one which has tended traditionally to be a bit of a... Um, a cul-de-sac. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's a very demanding portfolio. It covers so many things, uh, including vast amounts of money being spent on projects and all the rest of it. Um, it goes really to the dynamic now since the election, uh, since Dutton, as you say, came within three votes of, of winning the prime ministership. He was three votes away from the prime ministership. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, it does Scott Morrison, is he confident enough to um, to park Dutton away, knowing it'll be seen as being essentially um, a bit of a you know a backhander towards him, and that um, and that that's not going to stir Dutton into into grumbling uh, and preparing numbers and causing mischief. I, I look. I think he is certainly has the authority and, and is strong enough to do it. Whether he does, of course, is, is, is another matter. He certainly won't take my advice, but I, I think he's got the power to do it. And I think he should do it for himself, if I could put it that way, because, you know, D Dutton's star has, has fallen now. And, and I, I don't think that he any longer is the threat to Morrison uh, that he became, you know, somewhat surprisingly to Turnbull and then almost beat Morrison in that final ballot, as you mentioned. So I think he can do it. Uh, and, and I think it gives him room to move with other changes that he might want to make. Uh, I speculated in a piece about all of this. It included speculating that Greg Hunt might move out of health. That's one that I'm reliably, since writing that, informed won't happen in the context of the pandemic, uh, even if this reshuffle isn't until the end of the year. And even if it is under control by then, which it doesn't look like in the wake of Victoria, it will be. So other than that, I, I think that you know these moves do happen. Matthias goes. 
uh, you know, Birmingham becomes the leader in the Senate, probably takes finance. Uh, if Dutton gets shuffled out of home affairs to defence, that frees up home affairs. Uh, Linda Reynolds needs to go somewhere. Maybe they just do a neat transition there. But another name that will definitely, I think, come into Cabinet sooner rather than later, even if it's not the next reshuffle, is Ben Morton. One of the things that Morrison is doing is putting his Praetorian Guard around him. You know, he has to keep Porter where he is, even though they're not super close because Porter's super competent. Uh, and he has to keep Frydenberg where he is because Frydenberg is a visually significant figure. And of course, he's the party deputy, so he can choose his own portfolio, even though they're not super close either. They do work closely, these two with the PM. But he wants to bring in his lieutenants, his Praetorian Garden. Ben Morton sits at the vanguard of that. Alex Hawke is a junior minister who's another one of those. You know, Morrison wants his people around him. In that sense, he's Howard esque. I don't think he's Howard esque in his reforming zeal. But I do think he's Howard-esque in his internal party understanding. And that's not surprising. He's a former state director and he's been a, a party hack or party machine man his whole life. And Dave Sharma, the former senior diplomat, uh, uh, Malcolm Turnbull's pick uh, to take over the seat of Wentworth, a uh, blue ribbon liberal <laughs> seat on the uh, on Sydney Harbour, you know, a man for the future. He didn't go into parliament to do nothing. Uh, is his day close? Look, he's a very smart man uh, and very capable with a with a stunning CV in many respects. The, 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 I'll say something funny. I, I wrote that he should go into cabinet, but it's probably too early for him to jump from the backbench into cabinet. But I think he will rise. Uh, one uh, of his backbench colleagues immediately texted me when that article came out in the Australian, suggesting that Sharma should go up saying you've just done him enormous damage recommending him. <laughs> um, I, 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 I think his skills are such uh, that, that he goes up, uh, you know, whether Morrison likes him or not. But I, I don't think him and Morrison would have any issues. I think that, you know, Morrison values competency around him as well as having loyalists and trusted lieutenants. Uh, he just tries to get the mix right. Well, it's nice to think there are some people thinking positively about their jobs these days. So good luck to all of them uh, and good luck to anyone who's out there uh, listening to this and very anxious about uh, employment, particularly as some of these job uh, job keeper type of payments uh, start to drift off, yes. become more narrowly targeted. There's a, there's, there's a lot of grief still to come. PVO, great to have you back. Uh, great that you got to uh, see the mighty Ken Sutcliffe. That would be a highlight in anyone's <laughs> life. And um, we'll talk much more frequently in future. Sounds good. See you. All the best. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. <laughs>